Well, hello everybody. Good evening. Good day to all of you. Welcome to Ask Abhijit eighty eight. Uh, it's great to see you all. Let's see who all is there. I can see Anamai, Abbasis, Sudhir, Chaudhary, Vicky, Chahal, Rudra, Rajiv, Tamagna, Biswas, VMS Gaming, Akhil, Bebosman, Shashank, Komal, Lord, Kars, Rudra Singh, uh, Samudra, Amita, Akhil, Abhay. Suru, Zoro, Pratik, Ramesh, Pratyush, and so many other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. I hope you're doing well. I can see lots more people saying hi. Hi, everybody. Hi. It's great to see you all. It's great to see you all. So as you know, today is a live video chat session. And for that, I'm going to have to paste. I'm going to have to post uh, the link, the link for joining. So let's do it. Let's do it now. Here is the link. I should... I think you should be able to see it now let me pin it up yes it is pinned so the link is pinned you guys can start joining and there are certain rules that i have put in place these are the rules one question per person please keep your questions short and precise and if you appeared on video chat yesterday please do not join i want new people to join today if you joined yesterday please don't try to join yes, uh, join today I mean, if you appeared, if you spoke to me yesterday, please don't join. I would like new people to join. And if I see people joining who have joined yesterday, I will I will uh, have to remove them. So please understand that. Uh, and let me put this over here. There you go. So, so, so let's begin. Let's begin. Uh, let's bring in somebody. Let's bring in Mr. Gihan Jain. Hello. Sir, am I audible? Hello, sir. Hi. Yes, you are audible. Where are you from? Sir, I'm from Rajasthan. All right, all right. What's your question, sir? So my question is, sir, as it is said that Lord Buddha was the ninth avatar of Lord Vishnu, then why there is no proper mention of Lord Vishnu and his eight avatars in Jatak tales, if Jatak tales are stories of his previous births, and how Jatak tales can even form if he was ninth avatar of Lord Vishnu? I, I am not an expert in the Jatak tales and the avatars of Lord Vishnu. I am afraid I will not be able to answer your question. I mean, I don't have any expertise, expertise in this matter. Sorry, you have another other question? I'll give you one more chance. Yes, sir. Something sir, else? that yeah. in your previous video, uh, video you, has, uh, you have said that uh, Tipu Sultan was very barbaric and was not a great ruler. Sir, just I wanted to know the reasons. Because he committed so many atrocities, he destroyed so many temples, he killed so many people, he committed massacres. There is a community in uh, I don't I don't remember which what is the name, but they don't celebrate Diwali even today because their ancestors were massacred on Diwali day, and there were so many churches and Christians that were destroyed. I mean, uh, churches were destroyed, Christians were massacred, Christians were forcibly converted. I mean, if you look at the record of this person's uh, career and you see the, the account of the atrocities that are in writing, you will understand that there is no other way to, uh, no other description for such a person except for calling him a barbarian, a brutal monster. So that, that's it, what it is. You can look, look it up. All the records are available in the public domain, right? So that's why but I said why, that. sir, he's still uh, portrayed as a hero in the, our textbooks. Because our historians have a certain agenda to make young people like you think that our oppressors were the heroes and our heroes were actually uh, primitive, barbaric, useless, weak, losers. You know, they want to inculcate a defeatist mentality in Indians so that they can keep following the West and stay colonized. So that's what 
is the reason all right okay sir okay sir thank you thank you nice meeting you sir nice meeting you bye okay uh let us bring in somebody else let's bring in mr um, udit hello um yes sir hello sir uh did you read the rules sir oh sorry sir so then please, please, please don't do that okay, sir. yes sir sorry sir i didn't read the okay let's bring in somebody else uh let's bring in mr ashu hello i can't hear you sir hello sir hi i i can hear you now yes sir where are you from sir i am a big fan of yours i am big fan of yours thank you so sir, much thank I, you so sir, much sir i am from, from sir i am from bihar sir uh, darbhanga very nice very sir, nice what's your question sir, sir? i am right now i am staying in sir gurgaon okay okay sir, my, great so sir, sir my question is sir according to you who is the most influential scientist of all time and uh, uh-huh. is it newton or is it einstein and why sir uh, uh, and sir uh, as you are also a physicist so according to you who has done the tremendous job in the field of physics according to you and uh, who is the biggest inspiration in your life as a physicist so um, you can tell that right right okay good question so you know uh, it's uh, impossible to uh, to pinpoint just one person as the greatest of all time if you i i would say that every century there is one or two people there are one or two people who are the greatest so if you look at the 20th century 2020th century i would say it's most likely people like isaac newton uh, and the people who developed quantum mechanics uh, you know schrodinger heisenberg Niels Bohr and so so on so forth. They all collectively have a huge contribution. Among those head and shoulders above them is uh, Albert Einstein, obviously. And in the previous century, in the 19th century, most likely it's James Clerk Maxwell, the uh, person who uh, the physicist who gave us the laws of electromagnetism, the Maxwell equations, and so on. So I would not, I I I don't see any one person as the greatest of all time. I think in any given period of time, there are one or two individuals who are really really. among the greatest of all time and uh, most likely i would say that newton i don't consider him to be that great because see uh, he is con- he is given the credit of developing calculus but we know that that was all brought in from india it w- the knowledge of calculus was present in india at least 100 years before newton was born and all of that was transmitted to the west via the arabs so i do not consider him to be that great of course he built upon the knowledge that was acquired from the indians and so on so he's one of the greats and he himself said cryptically that if i have achieved some great things it's because i am standing on the shoulder of giants that's what he said i'm we don't know which giants he was referring to most likely ancient indians so that's what i would say and as far as i'm concerned my greatest inspiration well i am not inspired by any one person i am inspired by all the great physicists all the great scientists who have come before not only physicists even other other sciences and all that and other scholars other great people so i don't have any one person i worship i don't believe in hero worship and all and neither should anybody look at everybody and if you if you really seek uh, heroes or idols you should have a bunch of people from whom you can uh, be inspired for certain qualities so let's say you have certain uh, scientists in which certain qualities appeal to you then certain leaders or kings in which certain qualities appeal to you certain uh, business people whose certain qualities appeal to you that's the sort of thing you should have you should not hero worship one or two people that is a little bit counterproductive in my opinion all right sir i hope i answered your question yes sir thank you sir sir uh, thank you i love very much talking to you sir very good nice night, meeting sir. you thank you thank so you much. sir thank you so much bye good night bye okay
let's bring in uh, monica bhat good evening ma'am can't hear you good evening good evening sir can you hear me yes sir? i can hear you yes ma'am i can hear you so so nice to be here sir i am a great fan of yours and both of Thank my children so are also great fan of yours sir it's a pleasure to be here so my question is from, like uh, where are you from uh, i belong to uttarakhand okay Okay. Yeah, uh, but yes. I'm based in Delhi. I belong to Uttarakhand. Yes. Uh, yeah, okay. sir. Uh, my question is like, uh, uh, in uh, past few years that I have, uh, what I've seen is, sir, uh, uh, the worship of uh, Sai Baba has increased. Do you know it has crossed the limits and everywhere it, uh, it means so many people are following Sai Baba. So I just wanted to know the history because, uh, as far as our Vedas and all uh, scriptures are concerned. Uh, i did not get any reference from there so just can you please guide me thank you so much sir okay so yeah sure sure uh, very good question uh, i believe there is a, there are two three uh, people who have been given this term sai this this uh, title of sai baba right there was uh, this uh, one gentleman from shirdi in uh, i think maharashtra right who is called sai sai baba and there was another gentleman from the south of india the guy with the big hair yeah. who is also called sai baba so so and obviously these are these are recent these are people who lived recently very recently 19th and 20th century so obviously there will be no mention of these people in the vedas firstly so the thing is this in in any polytheistic uh, culture and ours hinduism what we call hinduism now is a polytheistic belief system which says that there is divinity there is the presence of god in every individual even in animals even in plants and all that and some people if they develop their, themselves they have more of it some people have less so it is believed that some people become avatars of vishnu because of the great things they did right they are called avatars of vishnu for instance and similarly some people because of special qualities they are regarded as kind of gods by by certain sections of society and i believe that's what happened with uh, shirdi sai baba and the other sai baba i am not a, a an expert in their life and career and all that so i don't know how how true or not true it would be that they were so great i have not studied their life and i am not very much aware of their history so i think it is up to individual people what they want to believe if they feel that some person has some extra divinity in them they can worship them i would say we should worship the gods of our vedas of our of our scriptures and all that that's my personal opinion but if somebody wants to differ from that opinion they have the right to do that i i am not going to tell them what to do but that's my personal opinion so i don't know about uh, these two gentlemen who were called sai baba i don't know how great they were what their achievements were that is simply something i don't have the knowledge of so that's all i can say about this thank you so much sir means uh, finally it's like uh, individual belief system means if yes, anybody yes, yes. Fine. Okay. Okay. Fine, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, sir. Nice meeting you, ma'am. Nice meeting you. Thank you. Nice meeting you, sir. Thank you. Same here, sir. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Let's uh, bring in uh, somebody. Uh, let's bring in Mr. Uh, Shamant. Hello. Hello, sir. Namaste, sir. Hi. Namaste. Namaste. Where are you from, sir? Sir, I am from Bengaluru. All right. Okay, so first of all, I'd yes, like sir, to thank question? you. Yeah, huh, we'll, yes. I'd like to thank you. We are very lucky to have you. Thank you, sir. Okay, so thank you. my question is: uh, We all know about ancient India. India was prosperous. So, but in last thousand years, we know what has happened. So, at present, we can see people are mentally colonized, all such things. So, 
culture uh, my question is about culture so culture is something like people say it's not required something like that so can you please tell me the importance of indian culture and how uh, we can decolonize the indian minds so like right. people rejecting indian culture are considered more indian like it's somewhat unnecessary people say like that so this is my question sir yes yes uh, it's a very very good question very valid point that today in today's uh, society if you reject indian culture if you denigrate indian culture if you make fun of it then you are supposed to be you are considered to be more advanced and more more modern and all that nonsense the thing is this what is the importance of culture in any society culture gives you a set of principles and moral values that you need to follow that you can follow or you should follow in order to live a fruitful productive and useful life not just for yourself but for the whole of society so every society every civilization has a certain set of moral values that it believes in these are the core fundamental moral values and principles for instance in india we say that ahimsa parma dharma satyam ev jayate and all that all of that right so we have this emphasis on speaking the truth we have an emphasis on uh, being good not being ha- not hurting other people and we believe in non violence but we also believe that we have to establish non violence if there is violence against us we have to destroy it and defeat it and and so on and so forth so every society every culture has a set of moral values and principles if you give up if you abandon culture then you are suddenly rootless and you are adrift then you will have to come up with a set of principles of your own and for most people it is very difficult to do that you know everybody needs some kind of anchoring in which they can uh, that serves as a, as a moral and ethical reference point for their life everybody needs that and if you uh, give up your culture give up uh, whatever values you, your society has then you become morally adrift and that's why people go into doing crimes and uh, indulging in behaviors that are harmful for themselves like smoking drugs alcoholism and what not right so if you give up culture that's what happens it 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 doesn't only apply to india it applies to the west the west for the past 1000 years plus was uh, practicing various forms of christianity now there is a certain moral structure in that there is a certain uh, uh, set of principles that is definitely part of christianity now what you're seeing in the us and in the in europe etc they are abandoning christianity because they are now beginning to see what it is all truly about whatever the reason but they are abandoning it abandoning it and now because of that the society is morally adrift they don't have a set of values and principles to uh, to anchor themselves to and that's why you're seeing all these uh, child i mean um, one parent families you see this very high rate of divorce you see uh, so many uh, so many such problems there is uh, drug abuse there is crime and all that so that's what happens when you abandon not religion but culture religion and culture are separate things i mean they could yes. be together but they are also separate you can have culture without religion too i mean you can be an atheist but you can still follow the principles of your culture so today what's happening in india is that there is this concerted effort to demean and uh, eradicate hinduism from india and not just hinduism all dharmic uh, the entire dharmic uh, structure is there is this very strong effort that is being made right now to uh, to to destroy it to to eradicate it from india and the media is part of it i'm not saying all of the media but a significant portion of the media a significant portion of the entertainment industry is is engaged in this effort and almost all of the academia is also engaged in this effort all our textbooks everything all our uh, the, the constitution the laws everything 
so what happens is that because of this youngsters are being raised rootless they are not grounded in their own culture and as a result they feel that indian culture is backward misogynistic blah 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 and because of that they are trying to uh, ape ape the west and we know what's happening in the west it is already rootless there is so much promiscuity there is all the crime there is the drug abuse and what not what not is there right all of, all of that so that's now what indians are trying to emulate because of mental colonization they think the west is superior the west is better they think oh, if if somebody has white skin they are superior to us and we should just blindly follow what they're doing and that is dragging india down so that's the reason why they, these people are doing it in order to keep india colonized because there are there is money flowing into india for precisely this particular effort so that's why it's happening and what needs to be done is we need to somehow find ways to uh, revive our culture uh, educate especially the children in what is right what is wrong and what their culture is and so on that this needs to be a long term concerted effort and hopefully the government which we are electing and who to whom we are paying taxes will so, some day wake up and do something about this but uh, if the government is not doing it the people need to wake up and they should also stick together work together and try to revive indian culture that's what i can say yeah thank you sir thank you good question sir nice meeting you thank you thank you sir nice meeting you thank you bye all right uh i have banu ji uh, did you read the rules sir why are you here i i i have clearly mentioned that Sir, I not join you... uh, yesterday. Oh, you 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 did not join yesterday. Yes, found the loophole in the rules. Perfect. What's your question? Yeah, okay. Good question, Bhanu. Uh, like I mentioned just now, Bollywood, the entire entertainment industry is engaged in a concerted effort to distort, demean Indian culture and history. They always portray Indian history in a certain specific way, distorted way. They portray the oppressors as our saviors and they portray our culture as inferior, our heroes as losers. Right? They have, they are engaged in this concerted effort for several decades, decades in doing this. and uh, they they no longer represent indian culture correctly uh, they they are no longer representatives of indian culture and they they are engaged in distorting everything so that's the reason they do it right and th- there is foreign i mean i am i'm assuming i don't know for sure but i'm assuming there must be some foreign funding flowing into these people at least some of them some of them i think that's also come in the media and all that so it's not something controversial that i'm saying so some of them may have some foreign <clears throat> influences because of which they are doing this so the entire effort not only of bollywood or some parts of bollywood but of certain parts of the media of the entire academic system about government policies everything is to de- demean indian culture distort indian history and portray our oppressors as our great saviors and our heroes as, our, as the great losers it's very simple so that's why it's happening sir okay thank you sir i will not join for next two weeks okay thank you so much it's always nice to see you anyway good questions thank as you, always thank you thank you bye yes yes he was right he did not break the rules okay let's bring in um let's bring in mr suraj hello hi sir i can't believe hi. that you know 
I came in conference with you. So it's like a well, here you are, sir. Here you are. <laughs> I post recently <laughs> on Facebook about you a lot. So it means. Oh, thank you me. so much. Thank you. Thank you yeah. so much. So, sir, oh, where I, are you from? I'm from Mumbai itself, and my okay. native is Kerala. Where? Kerala. Kerala, Kerala. Very nice. Very yeah. nice. Nice to meet you, sir. What's your question? Sir, so my question is related to uh, kind of science and mystery. Uh, so mm-hmm. basically, I wanted to know that in science, we we are quite well aware that energy can neither be created nor it can be destroyed. It can only be transferred from one, you know, one form to another. So my question is that uh, life is energy, and once you die, the energy is released. So it is not a destruction of energy. But why can't we prove that there is life after death? Or that energy is being transferred to some other form. Okay. Uh, see, the thing is this: we don't have a scientific definition of life, and uh, we don't have a, a clear, specific, unambiguous definition of what is life. So, life seems to be a biological phenomenon, right? We know what is life when we see right. it. We know whether something is alive or it is not alive. Whether something is a living thing or a non-living thing, we know it. And we okay. also know when an animal dies or a person dies. I mean, we can see that this person is no longer alive. Right. So right. we can see it, we can sense it, but we don't have a scientific definition, clear scientific definition. Because somebody who has died, whose heart has stopped, it can possibly be revived within a certain time. And even a person whose heart has stopped for like 10 minutes, their brain activity may be going on. So what is the definition? What is the dividing line between life and death? That's the first thing. Secondly, uh, so is life about your brain's consciousness is it about the beating of your heart what exactly it is we don't have a definition there is no uh, consensus of that and so so we have this physical body and uh, in this body there is uh, there are there are various chemicals and various substances etc and there is a certain uh, process that goes on continuously a, a bunch of chemical reactions and what not which which constitutes all of that constitutes life now is that it is matter it is matter right this is all matter right. it's not it's not electricity it is not energy uh, according to e equals mc squared in quantum physics uh, we know that matter and energy are equivalent they are interchangeable etc but right. what we have is matter we have electrical impulses going on inside electrochemical impulses and all right so once somebody dies what happens the body is the same but certain processes have stopped certain biochemical processes processes have stopped which has uh, ended the 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 living form of the body and it's no longer a living form now which energy is lost do we know if energy if any kind of energy is lost do we have any evidence of that that's the question right science mm-hmm. is all about measurable right. evidence observable evidence and and um, observable phenomena we observe that the breathing stops the heartbeat stops the, the beating of the heart stops maybe the brain activity stops so at a certain time we are 100% sure that this person is no longer alive but did okay. any energy disappear somewhere we don't know right we don't we cannot measure that right, right. and there doesn't seem to be any loss of energy instantaneously or any okay. such thing so the problem is that we are not able to observe any such phenomenon that this is some some x amount of energy in whatever joules has been removed from the body and it has gone somewhere else we don't mean we don't ever observe that i'm not saying it may not be the case right, but from, right, within right. the limitations of science and our observational powers and instruments we are not able to see that and science okay. is about these limitations we have very hard limitations that we have to follow otherwise we are no longer doing science we are doing something else 
so okay. that's why we cannot say for sure that such a thing happens so we know so that we kinetic sorry so we know that kinetic is getting converted into potential energy but we don't know how quickly we can revive it back to a kinetic energy after that i don't know which kinetic or potential energy is in, in you know in your body you know there is electrochemical energy okay. and all kinds of other other forms of energy it's not kinetic energy is newtonian physics you drop a ball it's kinetic in the if it is high it is potential and so on that right, that is right. a simple newtonian physics in the body you have electrochemistry and and a lot okay. of biochemistry and much more so it's okay. not as simple as it seems to be it's very complex and we don't know right. what is the dividing line okay sir thanks a lot all thanks right. a lot thank you thank you thank good you. question sir thank you bye. bye bye all right uh who do we have let's bring in mr um, mr robin hello no, hi hi sir namaste hi yeah. robin, robin hi uh, from where are you from i'm right. from banaras i'm currently living in like europe Uh, studying here so i have a simple question uh, like sure after living here for three or four years we have seen like when indians meet they usually don't uh, like interact so much like namaste hi like we have seen in like uh, these african people they basically they have in so much manner like they are very very like interactive but indians don't like even north indian north indian they don't like interact so much so is there any is there is any like uh, cultural thing or why this indian is like so much not not in interactive or you know like making it feel like we are indians we are brother and like like european or even this african they are very brother type brotherhood is there yeah very very interesting uh, observation you have made and i agree with you i think uh, uh, who was that guy there's this very famous comedian russell peters he says that uh, indians when they are abroad they hate each other they don't want to meet each other they they there is this attitude i think it is because of a certain inferiority complex that indians have that when they go abroad when most indians go and settle abroad or live abroad for some time they try to pretend that they are foreigners they try to give up their indian identity they put on this fake accent these fake mannerisms and all and when they see another indian they want to stay away otherwise we'll have to speak in the indian accent again and all that you know i think that is the thing because i have also been abroad i have seen this in, in with my own eyes indians like to avoid other indians that they don't know but otherwise indians also have this other interesting phenomenon that when indians live abroad they will all if they know each other let's say there are like seven indians working for a certain single company for the same company then they will all have their houses next to each other and they will only mingle with each other also that is also there and you will see these uh, temporary workers who go to the us for 3 months 6 months they will all live five six guys in one house and try to minimize the cost and all that so there are these interesting sociological phenomena that you see with indians living abroad but what you spe- what you specifically mentioned that indians try to avoid each other and all that if they don't know each other that may be because the indians try to become western and try to pretend like they are y- y- foreigners you know they try to put on this fake accent and all that so that may be the case i it's it's complex but your what your what your observation is is indeed uh, correct so that's what i can guess why why they may be behaving this way possibly okay sir thank you so much all right nice meeting you sir thank you thank you, thank you. bye okay let's bring in whom shall i bring in let's bring in mr samudra hello uh, hello sir am i audible uh not very clear hello 
can i continue i'm i'm sorry your voice is not clear at all unfortunately okay let's bring you in at, at some other time let's bring in somebody else um let's uh, bring in whom shall i bring abhishek hello hello sir hope you are fine hello i am very well i am very well how are you uh, doing uh, i am good sir sir i have this Where question so the so uh, sir i am from delhi sir okay okay go ahead please so the so called archaeological survey of india the founded in mm-hmm. 18th century is maintaining mm-hmm. the humayun's tomb very well but i recently mm-hmm. saw the raja 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 chola's tomb decaying in some part of india sir why sir yes yes excellent question very good question very good observation what you will see we have to go back to the origin in the history of the asi to understand its attitude and its behavior the asi i think it was uh, started in the 19th century somewhere most likely uh, if i'm not 1860s. mistaken 1860s 1860s that 18th, is the 19th century yes, that is the 19th uh, century oh yes yes yeah so in the 1860s like you say most likely yeah so and it it was founded by the british by the british foreign mm-hmm. colonizers and occupiers of india and the real reason for the fi- founding of this uh, of this institution was to go and search for various indian antiquities loot them and transfer them to the uk if you look at the uk if you look at the various museums in the uk london museum etc these are crime scenes everything is stolen from india enormous amounts of treasure and uh, various carvings statues priceless treasures are stolen from india they are they are all uh, uh collected over there and displayed over there and there is much more that is not displayed it is all stored and so much yes. more is in the hands of private collectors the the individual i don't remember his name the person who founded the asi who was the first head of the asi he was himself a big thief of indian antiquities much of what was discovered by the asi and restored by the asi was transferred to the uk and it became his private property so the asi its original mission was to seek out is was to find seek out and collect priceless indian antiquities and transfer most of them to the uk now today they they cannot do that to the uk but what you will find is that there are so many of these asi asi protected monuments they will not allow you to go there and and take a video i wonder why they will not allow indian citizens to go go to those monuments and take videos unless you pay them a lot of money but they will not take care of the of the monument and you will find that so many temples etc that are under the asi so supposed protection their murtis their idols and everything which is of you of value is all stolen the, the, you will find so many harappan era sites saraswati civilization era sites that are officially under asi protection and there are there are com- completely pillaged and i can show you online so much uh, so many artifacts from that uh, that era of our history are being sold online there is a site called vatican.com go there and see so many indus valley harappan etc sites are visit uh, 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 artifacts are for sale online over there so the asi is not doing anything because it was founded as an institution as an organization that was whose only intention was to steal valuable artifacts from india that was the beginning of the asi and i believe that over the years after 1947 there have been some asi uh, Uh, some people in the asi who have done really good work so there have been a few archaeologists who have done really really good work i'm sure there are a few even today who are doing good work but overall the asi is run by bureaucrats who have no interest in archaeology they are just bureaucrats and uh, 
the attitudes the colonial attitudes still persist and the contempt for indian culture and indian heritage still continues so they will uh, focus on maintaining turkic monuments mughal monuments invader monuments yes sir yes and they will just let every every actual indigenous indian cultural heritage just fall into disrepair and, and even be auctioned off online so that's what i'm what's happening i'm sure there are some good individuals in the asi i will not say that all of them are bad and all of them are like this but overall the attitude of the asi is that of complete neglect to th- that's the best thing i can say about them that they are neglecting yes. our heritage i can say much worse about them but i will say the best thing i can say is that they are neglecting our heritage so what needs to happen what needs to happen is that the asi needs to be disbanded by the government yes sir. stop funding yes, them sir. disband them and start a new institution that is comprised in which you only have professional archaeologists who are really well paid yes, and we need to have one yes, world class museum at least in every state in india that's what needs to yes, happen yes sir so that's what i can say sir very good question thank you sir you are inspiration sir thank you so much thank you so much nice meeting thank you, you sir thank you bye All right. Um, whom shall we bring in? Let's bring in uh, Shambhavi. Hello. Good evening. Good evening, sir. Good evening, ma'am. Where Good are you evening, from? Where are you from? I'm from Kolkata. Oh. Okay. Your okay, uh, could, could you could you mute, could my, you mute my, my, my sound? Because my sound because it's echoing. It's echoing. Able to do that. Okay. Okay. Let's let's hear your question. gone so can you hear me now yes sir uh, so my question is that uh, as we all know that uh, governor general lord william bentick was a person uh, who abolished the sati pratha so what was so my question is that what was the reason that he actually did that like uh, should we consider that as a favor towards us or uh, and what was the role of raja ramohan roy in you know doing like behind this Okay, good question. I'm going to put you on mute. So, um, uh, firstly, I'm going to answer your question for sure. It's a very good question. Uh, firstly, what I would suggest is there is a conversation on this channel with uh, Dr. Minakshi Jain. She has gone into this in in very good detail. So, I would recommend that you and anybody else who wants to learn about this should see that conversation. It's about one hour long. Now, to answer your question, there was no such thing as sati pratha. Pratha means a tradition. a tradition like sati did not really exist there and and you know what the british and the europeans have said they said they they have portrayed this thing in this manner that there was a compulsion in india for widows to be burned alive with their dead husbands they were forced to be burned this is how they are portrayed and if you look at the records uh, that they were maintaining the, the first place the british colonized was bengal which is why bengal is the most mentally colonized today not all but to a large extent i would just say that you know i'm not generalizing but you you see that more there so the first place they colonized was bengal and initially you will find that they were taking record keeping records of what was happening in bengal and there was almost no mention almost no mention whatsoever of the the so called practice of bride burning then the missionaries got involved and then suddenly from zero the number of cases per year started going beyond 10000 20000 all of a sudden by magic okay and then indian writers like ram mohan roy and various other bengali writers started writing about this great evil in hindu society which needs to be reformed and for generations they kept writing about it and today bengal is believe that this was a very deeply entrenched tradition in bengal 
but it's not the case it's all lies missionary lies made up fabricated lies okay and the funny thing is this that when this individual william bentick the so called lord william bentick he came to india and before he came to india he had already announced his intention to abolish this practice so he comes to india or uh, uh, issues the proclamation puts a sign his signature on that and you know what's strange he his abolition of sati was so magically powerful that from the next day onwards there was not a single case of sati in bengal it disappeared overnight yesterday until yesterday you had 10000 20000 cases per year and from today onwards there are zero cases magic the greatest reformer of all time william bentick these are all lies but the problem is that we are taught all of this is fact in our textbooks and all of our people they believe that bengal and in india you had this horrific tradition of forcibly burning women alive when their husbands died it is a lie it was a, this practice you will find a few instances over the centuries so if you look at uh, the conversation with dr minakshi jain you will she will mention that there have been a few practice few instances in all of the cases when a woman decided to do to do this she would be dissuaded by her friends by her family by her brothers sisters everybody they would plead with her please don't do this there are so many records of this and eventually if she decided it was her her choice nobody would stop her but it was always the woman's choice and there have been only a few instances instances of this happening typically it happened more in rajasthan among the rajputs among the royal families of the rajputs and the johar tradition was totally different from that it was like they they had no option that it was better to to burn yourself alive and destroy your body than to even let your dead body body fall in the hands of the turks right so that's how it was the role of ram mohan roy i mean i do not want to go much deeper into it because it will start another hue and cry but uh, what i can say is that this is all a lie william bentick was not a magician the the practice was not there at all right that's what i can say all right sir all right it's, it's all always right. a pleasure meeting you sir nice meeting you ma'am nice thank you so much thank you, you. Thank bye you. okay uh whom shall i bring in uh, let's bring in mr rahul hello uh, hi sir am i audible Yes, yes, you're audible, sir. Yeah. So Where I'm from? from MP. I'm I'm from MP. Mm. Yeah. Okay, great. So my question was actually, I am a Sindhi. So my question mm. was that, uh, uh, like, Sindh as a uh, like as a geographical location, it was like very hard hit when the Turkic invaders or Islamic invaders came in. So yes. Uh, and and it is believed to be like at that time when the Islamic invasions were happening and. Uh, so like oh, they converted and brutally like murdered and converted at least 80% of people were converted to islam and maybe 20% were left so uh, like julelal as like it is some somewhere it is considered to be like he is a uh, 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 avatar of uh, vishnu ji so mm -hmm. uh, and the sindhi language so uh, do you think that the sindhi language was prevalent at the time of harappan or indus or saraswati civilization or it came in much later and uh, your okay. thoughts on the sindhi people uh, my thoughts on the sindhi on the sindhi people is that uh, they are one of the peoples of uh, of india the sindhi people are indians i mean today many sindhis are in pakistan it's a temporary phenomenon we will reintegrate them when the time is right sindhis are as indian as anybody else bengalis gujaratis marwaris uh, manipuris bengalis anybody else right uh, so about uh, the geographical location of sindh it is to the western part of india 
for sure that's why it was easier i mean it was one of the first parts of india to to bear the brunt of the turkic and uh, first the arabic invasions and the turkic invasions which came subsequently so i think it is believed that there was this, this uh, person individual called mohammed bin qasim who was the first among the arabs to to try and to attempt invading india and there was some amount of success i believe in sindh raja dahir got involved in one of these invasions and uh, i believe he died and there were some terrible atrocities so yes because of the location geographical location sindh is to the west western part of india uh, the westernmost part of india historically has been balochistan the border of india and persia and then you had sindh so sindh always bore the brunt sindh afghanistan gandhar and these western regions bore the brunt of the turkic and other invasions the most and they were the first uh, regions to uh, fall to the invaders yes so uh, so yeah that's what happened and like you mentioned uh, over time all the people got converted to the foreign religion and that's what we witnessed today so the demographics have changed the religious demographics are very different today than what they have historically been so that's what i can say now about the sindhi language it is one of the newer uh, uh, descendants of prakrit languages so the oldest uh, if you go back 2000 years 2 and a half thousand years the classical age of india at that time the main language civilizational language and the overall language that was spoken everywhere was uh, uh, was classical sanskrit or paninian sanskrit so that was the main language spoken everywhere and eventually what happened is that uh, in different parts of india the language evolved and uh, it kind of got mildly corrupted it's called upper branch the process of upper branch which means that the language evolves and changes and the the words kind of uh, undergo some kind of um, uh, change so that gave rise to a bunch of new languages which were all daughter languages of sanskrit these are called the prakrits these are the prakrit languages and from the prakrits there came newer languages it's always a continuing process and from that you got like languages like uh, old gujarati which gave rise to marwadi mewadi gujarati that is spoken today and there is old a, a very similar similarity in gujarati and rajasthani and sindhi also there is a similarity there yes of course because the, the reason for that is that these are all geographically uh, contiguous regions these are all neighboring yeah. states the people are more or less similar the people their origins are more or less similar and the languages will obviously be very similar so if you look at gujarati if you look at rajasthan or uh, the marwadi mewadi even if you look at sindhi or even if you look at balochi these are very similar languages even balochi is very similar to sindhi and gujarati and mewadi marwadi etc so that's how it happens the language evolves over time even if you look at the old persian language that was spoken during the so called uh, avestan or or uh, achaemenid times in in persia that itself was an upper branch language of sanskrit it was a descendant language of sanskrit so this entire region from india to the middle east was actually one uh, geoethnic continuum the same people in in different places and their languages evolved differently so sindhi just like the other languages of india is one of those newer evolved languages it must have it must have emerged sometime in the past 1000 years from an older language which is the mother language of of sindhi and eventually if you go back in time you will arrive at sanskrit so that's how it okay. went thank you sir thank all you all right sir nice meeting thank you sir thank you good question thank you, thank you. all right let's uh, whom shall i bring in let's bring in mr sai rakshit Hello. Hello, sir. How are you? I am very well. How are you doing, sir? I am very good, sir. So my question to you is where, related to history as well as culture. Where are you from? I am from Tamil Nadu, Chennai. Nice to meet you. Hello, nice everybody meet, in sir. Chennai. 
Yes, thank you so much, sir. So my question to you is related to history and political, current political science, mm-hmm. sir. That post independence, when we framed our constitution, we have adopted secularism. Mm-hmm. It's a very good choice. I myself, I'm mm-hmm. secular. I respect mm-hmm. everyone. I'm not. Why? I'm not. Okay, sir. Like it's my personal opinion. <laughs> of but, course, of course, I respect your opinion. <laughs> yes, sir. But my opinion is why was it chosen? Why, why was secularism chosen to govern an entire country like India? I mean, hmm. we like okay. Now we have our neighbors. Pakistan says proudly, yes, we are Islamic country. Bangladesh says, hmm. yes, we are Islamic country. China says, we are strong atheists. We hmm. say we don't have any identity because we are secular. I mean, yes, Turkey is also secular. Their people are secular. That's what I believe. Like I have, I've heard that uh, they pers- at personal level they are secular, but they recognize themselves as Islamic country. So why did our leaders choose secularism as a core concept to govern our country? Is hmm. it that uh, our national leaders had some Hindu hatred, or good question? You know, like good question. I, I get it. This is what I want to know, know I, from you, sir. You, sir, have asked a very good question. All right. Uh, so, so congratulations on asking a very good question. Now, let me answer that. Uh, so, the people whom we uh, regard as our founding fathers, uh, founding fathers as our leaders, were not really our leaders. They did not represent India. They were not representative of the vast diversity of India. So the individuals, the group of individuals who uh, formed the so-called Constituent Assembly of India, right? If you look at them, how did they make it to the Constituent Assembly? Was there an election from all the different parts of India? And each 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 uh, part of India elects one person to represent them in the Constituent Assembly? No, that did not happen. These people were drawn from an earlier election. I, wrote, I think it was the 1943 or something like that. 41, was it? One of these years, look it up. Yes, yes, you're right, sir. So from that election, a large part of the Constituent Assembly was drawn. Now this election, if you look at the details which are available, you will find that it represented only 13% of Indians. One, three, 13% of Indians. All right. So this was not a representative election of the people of India. And from that, you pull out a bunch of people, you put them in the Constituent Assembly. And a lot of the other people in the Constituent Assembly were nominated by the princely states who were all puppets of the British. So what you find is that this so-called democratic process was not democratic at all. It was all people who were essentially beholden to the foreign occupiers of India. And all they did was to transform the 1935, one of the 1935 acts of the British into a new framework, into a slightly different framework. And they called it the new constitution of India. It is entirely European and Western in origin. There is nothing Indian in it. So how can it be the constitution of India? Secondly, after they framed this, they framed this so-called constitution, they put we the people, blah, blah, blah on, uh, on, on the front page. Yes. But if you look at the way a democracy works, let's, let's see how the Americans uh, adopted their constitution. So their so-called founding fathers, they made the constitution. Then the constitution was put to a vote. And every adult white male in America was allowed to vote yes or no. Women were not allowed, of course. And blacks and Native Americans were not humans, so they were not allowed. But all adult white males were given the choice of accepting or rejecting the constitution. Now in India, after these individuals framed, drafted the constitution, they did not put it to a vote and ask the people of India, are you willing to accept this or not? Is it palatable to you or do you find it is wrong? This was never done. The constitution has till date not been ratified by the people of India. 
and therefore it does not represent the people of india and that's why there are all these clauses that are so badly anti indian civilization that even somebody who has any anybody who has any sense if they actually examine the events and the constitution they will realize how wrong it is but what happens is that we are taught in our history textbooks and in our schools that this was a democratic process and then the constitution is so large 500 plus pages that nobody has the time to read it so we just say ha bhai ho gaya we have a constitution and we will worship it so that is the way the people of india have been duped and that's why it is so very badly uh, anti indian civilization and culture so your point is very very uh, correct that you know it's it's a personal choice whether you want to be secular or not secularism is a western concept what we believe in india for thousands of years is that every human being has the is equal everybody should get the same rights we should respect diversity plurality other people's cultures or other, other people's traditions we believe that and you can call that secularism if you want so i th- that is something i also believe we should respect everybody you live in your country you can practice your religion your culture but don't try to tell me what to do in my country and similarly i will not tell you what to do in your country it should be like that mutual respect but that's not how it works in indian secularism and that's why the the, uh, the outline that i just gave you that's why it happened that way that's why we are where we are thank you so much sir thank you thank you good question nice meeting you bye nice meeting you sir. bye thank you bye okay uh let's bring in uh, mr bhushan Hello. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you from? Sir, uh, how, where, where are you from, uh, sir? Sir, I'm uh, currently in Chennai. Okay. Very nice. Sir, very nice. Nice meeting you. Sir, What's your question? Sir, my question is that uh, does the central government have enough power to uh, free all the temples from the nation? If they have, why are they doing? Uh, I believe the central government has the power to pass a law that says that the temples should be treated the way all other religious monuments of other other communities are treated. Every other non-Hindu religious community is given the right to administer the temples in any way they in whatever way they want according to their uh, religious traditions or whatever it is. But Hindus are denied this right. I believe the central government has the power to to. I'm going to mute you sir there's a lot of noise I'm going to mute you okay so I believe the central government has the power to pass a law that says that Hindu temples will be free and sir I'm going to keep you muted because there's a lot of noise coming in so yes sir okay it's fine sir it's okay I got my answer thank you sir you got it let me finish it anyway yes, so what i'm saying is the central government has the power to do it it is up to them whether they choose to do it or not that's what i would say so uh, why are they not doing it i think we should ask them because i don't have the answer <laughs> all right sir all right thank you nice meeting you okay let's bring in um, mr chaitanya hello hello sir hello sir how are Hi, you hi where are you from I am very. Well. I'm from. I'm very. Well. I'm from Kolapur, sir. Kolapur, Maharashtra. Mm. A lot All of right. people don't know, but this town is known as the Southern Kashi of India. And the food is excellent, isn't it? Yes, yes, excellent, excellent. <laughs> okay, what's your question, sir? Uh, so my question is, uh, I just uh, I will just read it out. In ancient mm. times, there were many civilizations, and they had their respective mm. religions and methods of practice. 
mm-hmm. like the Greeks, Romans, and ancient Egyptian civilization. And after the Abrahamic Re- revolution in Middle East, only one civilization, that is this Vedic civilization of India, has continued to exist. And we mm-hmm. see there are people still performing yagyas, ahutis, and uh, people practicing dhyana yoga. So, what are the reasons or specialities about this particular culture? because of which this culture has survived hmm good question good question um so firstly i would not agree i mean uh, you do not say that but many people say that indian civilization has survived i would say that indian civilization stopped existing in 1947 in 1947 india officially became a secular socialist country and abandoned the principles and the values of uh, dharma so indian civilization stopped existing at that point so we still have culture that people keep on practicing but the state is hindu phobic it is anti culture and civilization that's what it is now okay. why did indian culture uh, survive this far thus far it's because of india's enormous plurality if you have a monochromatic one dimensional uh, population the same ethnicity same language and the same practices it is very easy to destroy it but in india there are so many different languages there are so many manifestations of indian culture so many different gods and goddesses that everybody worships which are all manifestations of the ultimate reality and and that's how it is perceived and we have so many different traditions if you go from district to district you will find the food changing the practices changing the language changing the dialect changing the traditions changing and yet it is all representative of the overarching umbrella of indian civilization that's why because of this incredible diversity and plurality the foreigners were not able to eradicate indian culture if you look at persia the persians the parshwa people they were our uh, they were descendants of ancient indians who had uh, migrated to the west to to what is now called persia they were a uniform population they were all the same ethnicity small population same ethnicity same language same practice it was so easy in 20 30 years the entire zoroastrian culture was gone because of this uniformity in india the uh, subcontinent is enormous it is a subcontinent it's not a country it's a subcontinent and there is so much diversity so because of this this what we call the diversity it it ended up becoming india's strength and that's why the foreigners were despite their best efforts they were not able to eradicate everything about indian culture and civilization so today it still persists but today what's happened is that we have a monochromatic education system a one dimensional education system that is permeating the minds of every child so today after our so called independence we are seeing the rapid eradication and erosion of indian culture and values so that is the big threat today but until now we survived because th- that thing was not in place so that's what i can say thank you sir it was an honor thank you so much nice meeting you sir thank you bye thank you bye okay Mr Sahas Hello hello sir uh hi how are you sir I am good sir how are you doing where are you from I am from Uttar Pradesh sir nice to meet you uh sir the question i want to ask is and i'm pretty sure uh, many people at my age college going students will relate to it sir our mm-hmm. teachers are a bunch of anglophiles they are just in love with the white skin and they are so disconnected from the reality of this country it's hilarious so sir my question is that teaching is one such profession that you'll get a new wave of teachers at least after 10 15 years so mm-hmm. sir will we just let
hi uh, sorry I, i think there was some disconnection please please repeat that please yes sir so i was saying that uh, our teachers are anglophile so sir my mm. question is that teaching is one such profession where you'll get a new wave of teachers at least after 10 15 years so yes will we just let our students get brainwashed by these people till then or is there any way mm. out so hmm. yeah, very good question very good question so i would yes so what you have observed is correct most of our teachers i would say are 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 i don't blame them for it it's because their teachers taught them the same thing and it's continuing yeah yes. yeah this tradition is continuing generation after generation so every generation of teachers brainwashes a new generation of kids and many of them become teachers and that uh, tradition continues now the thing is this uh, in the indian education system see in any um, education system in a good education system the stakeholders should be the students we are doing this for the students the students have the rights and the privileges that are above everybody else but in the indian education system the teachers and the staff are the stakeholders and the students are just the victims or the hostages so the the ones who get the most rights and privileges is the teachers and the staff they take priority and precedence about about everything else imagine that a student misbehaves in school what's going to happen the school student will be expelled now imagine a teacher or staff misbehaves nothing will happen that tells you who's the who's the real stakeholder right so they are so what's happened is that this is a self serving system and they want to keep it going just the way it has been going for the past 150 years they don't want any changes changes are uh, uncomfortable changes are painful just keep it going keep the routine going and uh, because of, the other thing is that it also serves the 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 system which wants indians to be mentally colonized indians should remain mentally colonized indians should not become uh, thinkers and leaders indians should be sheep so this colonial system has been going on and that's what they want to continue so the new teachers that come out every 15 20 years they are themselves victims of this as children and as when they grow up they they grow up with the same belief that the teachers put them in their heads so it continues so what needs to happen uh, the, see the who controls and and sustains the education system we don't do it the government does it the government passes the rules they they regulate the education system they pass the they, they decide the policies and they issue the funding and of course there is this private education now which has become a huge business so in that case it is all about money so what needs to happen is that the government at some point in time needs to decide that the time is now right that we revise and reform the education system we make the citizens and the children the stakeholders not the teachers today the education system is essentially a, an employment generation scheme the only purpose is to generate more employment for teachers for staff and to generate money for the owners of the of the private schools the students are merely hostages and victims so that attitude needs to change and it will not change unless the government forces forces it to change so unfortunately it's not in our hands the government has to do it hopefully one of these days it will happen i guess hope i hope so yes sir right sir i read this very cute comment in one of your streams sir that abhijit uh-huh. ji is that one cool uncle we all wished we had so <laughs> thank you for being that cool uncle sir <laughs> most welcome sir most welcome thank you nice meeting you thank you sir thank you <laughs> yeah thank you bye <laughs> All right, all right. Let's uh, bring in somebody else. Okay, let's bring in Shreyas. Hi, Shreyas. Hi, hi, sir. Uh, am hi. I audible? Yes, yes. Don't be so serious. Relax. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm from Mumbai, from? Maharashtra, Mumbai. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. 
सर माय क्वेश्चन इज वेरी सिंपल व्हाट इज द इनविजिबल हैंड दैट यू टॉक अबाउट इन इन कोड ओके गुड क्वेश्चन सो द इनविजिबल हैंड सो द दिस टर्म आई डिड नॉट कॉइन इट this term was coined sometime in the middle of the 19th century and guess who coined this term invisible hand it was the great shri shri karl marx who coined this term the great marx the great father of all the marxists you know he is the one who coined this term invisible hand he said that there is an invisible hand that guides and controls world events so all the governments and all these kingdoms and all these things they are just the superficial aspect of what we see but there is something a deeper hidden reality mm-hmm. a bunch of people who hold the true reins of power who hold all the money and who are controlling events from behind the scenes that's what he said now as we know karl marx whether we like him or not he was not a conspiracy theorist he was not a conspiracy theorist he is in the west is one of the most respected thinkers he is even considered to be one of the, one of the great philosophers of the west sir we had him so in a uh, 10 standard history textbook that oh he wrote das kapital wow. this what das shit. kapital yes 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 good good point so the thing is he was not a conspiracy theorist so if he observed this there must be some reality to it and if there was an invisible hand in the 19th century i'm sure it continued until the 20th century and maybe it still exists in the 21st century so what you see is that there is what you see i mean uh, let me just make a joke okay. so some people allege this this is an allegation made by conspiracy theorists so you don't have to take it completely seriously you can take it with a handful of salt they say that conspiracy theorists say that when you are elected the president of the us they take you to a room they take you to a room where you get to finally meet the people who really run the country you know that's what they say conspiracy theorists so that could be possibly what they mean by the invisible hand and there could be a controlling force elsewhere also that is controlling global affairs perhaps possibly that is the concept of the of the invisible hand which has been around since at least the 19th century now i had uh, jokingly said that it is believed that the the invisible hand speaks english i had said yeah, that yeah. jokingly yeah, yeah. but i would say it's also possible that maybe the invisible uh, the invisible hand speaks german or some european language i'm not sure because i don't know man i'm just i'm just guessing if it even exists does but it speak chinese that is the uh not yet because the chinese have thus far not been anywhere it's just the last 30 years that they've risen so, so maybe a 100 years in the future communist party of india from kerala they the have communist party of india China. i would say it is a bunch they of puppets they course. are merely mercenaries they are not thought leaders or they are not powerful enough they they simply act as spoilers within india uh, at the behest of 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 what you could call invisible hand or some fingers in the invisible hand yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right sir okay nice to meet you bye. nice to meet you good question bye. invisible good hand bye <laughs> <laughs> good night good night bye Okay, let's uh, bring in whom shall we bring in, Mr. Kushagra? Hello. Hello, hello, sir. Hi. Uh, uh, my name is Kushagra. Uh, I am from Germany, but from, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm but but I live in Punjab in India. All right, all right. Nice to meet you, sir. What's your question? Hello. Yeah, the my question is related to the last question that you answered. It's mm-hmm. like, do you think that Google and the current internet that we are using was a mm-hmm. pilot project of uh, us government or the intelligence agency and 
and what these uh, companies like youtube uh, google and uh, apple what what do these companies do with the data that we that they take uh, take it from us hmm hmm good question so what i can tell you is that uh, the internet itself was a darpa project darpa is the uh, the us equivalent of drdo but it is far superior to drdo drdo and darpa they were founded in the same year both in the same year but darpa has gone way 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 ahead of drdo because of various reasons now so this the the darpa scientists the researchers there they came up with this idea of interlinking con- uh, computers across geographies and have these computers uh, talk to each other they called it arpanet a r p a n e t arpanet and this arpanet became the basis of what we now call the internet so eventually uh, this system was expanded firstly it was mainly defense computers then i think there was a network of academic computers in various universities and eventually it expanded to become a network of all computers connected globally so that is the internet so that is how the internet was born it was i think in the 1960s or 70s or something that the uh, first pilot testing was done uh, i don't remember the dates you can look it up now what i can say is this uh, today as you know data is a precious commodity data is the new oil i do not believe that google or whatever was a us government pilot project but what i do what we do know is that uh, uh, it it is located in the us it is uh, it's part of the us system and therefore i am sure the us government must be in a position to to use the data to uh, to access the data and use it in various in, in various ways uh, this uh, gentleman edward snowden had yes, revealed something yeah. called prism yeah. yeah so in prism what you had you had a synthesis of various data sources into a one big picture and you could see what's happening what is the sentiment in any particular geography in the world at any given time and you could even play on the sentiments and and uh, shape the sentiments and beliefs and feelings of people by trending certain hashtags or whatever you know something like that so that's what prism was that's like more than 10 years ago today there'll be something else much more advanced in place i do not doubt that the americans are good at this and so that would essentially involve a synthesis of data from various sources not only google but uh, amazon youtube uh, bing and various other things which i i'm i'm just i'm just speculating i don't have any actual information it's just an educated guess so uh so that's what i can say i can only make an educated guess that something like that may be there in place must be there in place i mean if you have all access to all this information why would you not use it anybody would yeah. do that i mean i saw that movie the, the snowden movie it, in that it was ah. shown exactly like that and that's why i think right. china do, doesn't have the, uh, the have the firewall in their country to protect themselves from the usa yes and the other yes you know. yes yes you're right good question sir thank you have a nice, nice meeting you you're really good i saw your first video in like 2020 chungis khan one and that was really good the books that you mentioned you. i have not read all of them but they were really good thank you for just do just keep doing this work thank you bye thank you so much thank you so much appreciate it thank you bye okay um shivam mr shivam hello can you hear me can you see me hello sir hello hello how are you doing right can you hear me yes yes okay i guess you're not able to hear me so we will bring you in later uh 
Whom shall we bring in? Let's bring in Mr. Brutus. Brutus. Mr. Brutus. Hi, sir. How are you? Hi. I'm very Can well. You hear me? How are you doing? Where are you from? Yeah. Yes, I'm yes. from Mumbai, sir. Uh, I, I, have, I guess mm -hmm. I have earlier asked you this question about Semiramis. Mm -hmm. Do you remember? Semiramis, the Assyrian queen, right? Yes, 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 yes. Uh -huh. Okay, you would like to know about her? Uh, okay, yes, sir. So, uh, mm. So what I can tell you is not much. Semiramis <laughs> uh, was uh, an Assyrian queen. I don't remember when she lived. Maybe in the first or second millennium BC. Maybe. Um, she is, as far as I remember, the first woman to hold a significant position of power in this region, west of Persia. Uh, there may be parts of Persia in her kingdom. And she was the wife of one of the kings who died or something and uh, she was very powerful she was the first woman like i said to hold the power and become an actual queen in her own right and as far as the records uh, are there they seem to indicate that she attempted to go eastwards and try an invasion of india which ended in a defeat that the indian king whose identity i don't remember right now he was able to defeat her forces and she was forced to retreat and go back to her country. So that's what I can tell you in very brief mm. about her. Uh, I think I, the information you can read online. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. yeah go ahead. I have read like um, she has a bring around 4,000 horse and she just left around 20 to, back, uh -huh. to go back. I have read this, but I don't know if it is factual or not. So, yeah, the, the records seem yeah. to indicate that she tried mm -hmm. she tried invading India and she failed in that. Yeah. But I can't find the name of the king whom she had fought. Mm, that's something we need to look mm -hmm. into. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank I'll, you so I'll much. Try sir. And look into that. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you so nice much. Sir. You. Your inspiration, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Okay, let's bring in Mr. Chinmay. Chinmay ji. Good evening, sir. Good day, sir. Where are where Hello, are you, sir? sir? Hello, where are you from? Sir, I am from Amravati district, Maharashtra. Very nice to meet you, sir. Very nice to meet you. Uh, sir, my question is, sir, uh, what mm -hmm. according to you is the best strategy to, do, to deal with the uh, left-wing extremism in India? And uh, why don't India conduct a surgical strike type of operation uh, against the Naxalites? Like, I mean, bombing mm -hmm. by helicopters or aircraft. Thank you. Okay, okay. Good question. Uh, so what I would say is this. Uh, they may be Naxalites, they may be criminals, but they are Indian citizens and we should not bomb them. We should try to apprehend. See, this is not a military operation. This is a civilian uh, problem. Uh, they may be bearing arms and all that. They may be doing that. But they are not Pakistanis. They are not foreigners. They are our own citizens. So we should at least give them a certain extra privilege as Indian citizens that we will not bomb them from the air. We should not bomb uh, Indian citizens from the air. What I would say what should be done? What should be done about these uh, insurgents, terrorists, etc.? The first thing that needs to happen is cut off their sources of foreign funding. See, these people, they are getting funding from somewhere, they are being coordinated from somewhere, and they are getting arms and ammunition from somewhere. Identify these sources and cut off the funding and, and ensure that that funding, the source of the funding is targeted and dealt with and neutralized. So most of these sources of funding etc they they are from they are outside of india historically it's been like that i mean there have been books written about this articles written about this most of these people are funded from abroad whether it is from china whether it is from pakistan or various other places invisible hands wherever it is 
so find out where this is coming from <laughs> and cut off the sources of funding that itself will take care of 95% of the problem now if something still persists do a police action with crpf or whatever go and apprehend the criminals or terrorists and then deal with them according to the indian law that's what i would suggest so the the problem it has its roots in foreign funding it is foreign actors who are funding and supporting insurgencies and terrorist activities within india that is the entire naxalite problem the so called red belt problem which can be dealt with in this manner i am sure i mean as we can see before 2014 this was a huge problem in india very large portions of central india were not under the control of the indian state of the indian government today that has that problem has shrunk down the cancer has shrunk because of chemotherapy to a very large extent now it is not that much prevalent in yeah. central india or other parts of india you still have some of it so i am sure the government if it uh, who am i to tell them what to do they know better than me but th that is the uh, way to go about it i would say right so i think the response should be more humane as far as indian citizens and non military actors are concerned we can have a more calibrated approach towards them thank you so right. much it was a pleasure thank you nice meeting you thank you say likewise bye, thank you bye okay um let's bring in whom shall we bring in uh somebody who's been waiting for a while let's bring in mr uh, somya brata hello i cannot hear you sir Hello, sir. Can't hear you. I Hi. Ha. Hello, sir. I, uh, my question was about the Bangladesh Liberation War in 1971. As we have heard in our schools also that Bangladesh Liberation War was an ethnocide and genocide uh, conducted against the Bengal community. But if we see the statistics and many books written on it by an American journalist named, uh, and and the book name is the Blood Telegram, in which he informs yes. that. most of the people who were killed were from the hindu community and also mm -hmm. when the operation sachlai started by the pakistan army in the dhaka and uh, the village areas most of the uh, victims were hindus and only those muslims were killed who supported the hindus and uh, the awami league at that time and also yes. we know that sheikh mujibur rahman before the uh, formation of awami league he uh, he was the member of the muslim league and was a close associate of the surawardi gang mm -hmm. so why mm -hmm. this uh, this fact has been brushed under the carpet that it was a ethnocide uh, not a religious genocide if you see 20 million people out of 30 were hindus only that is what the question mm. yes uh, <clears throat> the problem <laughs> is that uh, any atrocity against hindus uh, it's always been the policy of the west Uh, to brush it under the carpet the west this is the thing is this is a clash of civilizations actually our civilization has survived despite a thousand years of brutalization and oppression and they don't like it according to them what should have happened is that india should have been totally westernized indian culture civilization should have been wiped out and we should have been uh, become part of their market that they, they can sell things to and so the thing is that if you look at the western academics they have a policy of uh, deriding and expressing contempt towards indian culture it's a policy 
all the anglophile english speaking western academics have this policy that even if you're teaching indian history you have to distort it show it from a certain perspective and you must make fun of hinduism you have to be contemptuous towards hinduism and indian culture that's the, been their policy and this is simply in line with the policy to uh, to kind of water down whatever atrocities happened against uh, hindus whether it is in bangladesh or whether, whether it is in the past 1000 years of indian history also i mean you know if you look at the past 1000 years of indian history i can assure you that at least 100 million indians must have died or maybe 500 million years over 1000 years but that is not recognized in any textbook in any history book anywhere in the world right the british themselves killed at least 100 million indians mostly were hindus right because of their uh, artificially engineered famines now in the bangladesh genocide i would the official figures are 1.5 million is it sir my far distant relative who used to live in bangladesh barishal district he was uh, attacked by the pakistani army his family and the local collaborators of the pakistan the al badar islamist group was a bengal and islamic fundamentalist group who supported that group mm-hmm. so basically there were many bengali muslims who were supporting pakistan army and targeting yes basically yes so that is the, that is the other reason yeah so that's the other reason lots of bangladeshis were collaborators in this and uh, many of them became prominent politicians and uh, local leaders etc after 1971 and it, because of that yeah. they it was also good for them to kind of suppress all the truth about what happened in 1971 that all of them were collaborating with the pakistani army and uh, in in uh, conducting the, this genocide of hindus i think the figure of 1.5 million hindus is actually an under representation of what must have really happened right the actual figure must be much dhaka, higher also in dhaka recently few skeletons have been found and those skeletons identified as bengali hindus were killed by the pakistani army there must be many more skeletons than under the carpet yeah yes yeah, yeah. sir yeah thank you sir so that's the policy yeah so good question and uh, nice meeting you thank you sir. thank you hello hi, tanish sir. hi can i can hear you sir where are you from yeah. so i am from maharashtra and i'm living in bangalore yeah mm-hmm. so my question is like uh, like the india is on the wrong path like we need to get it on the right path like uh, we need to do many reforms like get it to the civilizational root so for all that we need a, di- a dictatorship so we need a dictator mm-hmm. so okay. for uh, so in the future if we get a, like a like a good leader he has to become a dictator but then when mm-hmm. he tries to do that india will become destabilized so mm-hmm. whenever a country becomes destabilized like the other countries can take uh, like advantage of that like china can do some war or something so how mm-hmm. can someone like uh, become a dictator without destabilizing the country or like should it be, be like the invisible hand of india uh very interesting question so first of all i would not say that i am in, in favor of a dictator or something x or y or z i what i would say is that whatever works best try that whether it is a monarchy whether it's a dictatorship whether it's democracy a form of democracy or b form of democracy doesn't matter it doesn't matter what color the cat is as long as it catches mice so what we need is india needs to rise again india needs to rise to its historical position of at least one third of the world's gdp right that's the first thing and india should be a it, it should be it should have long term uh, 
security and prosperity that is what we seek now let's say hypothetically that you want to install a dictator in, in india in india so that it becomes easier to reach this position hypothetically so if somebody tries to be a dictator they are going to face opposition that's the just the way of the world now how does one become a dictator despite all of this opposition how do you do it look at history look at examples in history in the past 1000 years how did in the past 1000 years or in any country in the world how did uh, let's say you have people like napoleon you have people like uh, like mustafa kemal ataturk you have people like chingiz khan how did these people rise from nothing assume the reins of power and succeed to whatever extent they succeeded if you study their life history and whatever tactics and strategies they used you will understand how a dictator can rise a uh, consolidated power and uh, take the country forward so if you study history you will get all the answers i don't i cannot give you the, all the details because it will take a lot, lot, lot of time there are lots of things that a person needs to overcome in order to rise to that state uh, to that status so the last such example successful example would be mustafa kemal ataturk in turkey is there any other more recent successful example i'm not quite sure maybe there is and maybe there's not let's see but that's what i can say that the history world history offers you all the lessons you need so, th- th- so these principles of power there are timeless principles the, you can adapt them for any time period whether it is uh, 5000 bc or the 21st century the principles remain the same but you have to adapt them according to the local time frame and the situation all right sir yes so that's it all right thank you good question bye okay um mr devi prasanna hello yes sir hello uh, i hope you can hear me i can hear you sir nice to see you where are you from sir i am from odisha and uh, i live in bhubneswar actually and uh, beautiful and so glad to finally uh, have a chance to talk to you it was really a race clicking in that to join this room and to get a chance to talk with you because i'm a, uh, i mean i've been watching you for almost 2 years now and it's really uh, educational because all that uh, fairy tales that we have read from our history and crt books all those things and uh, the real uh, history when we read from other books like the saffron swords and the uh, books that uh, you recommend and uh, those are really educational and uh, i i actually had a question when this uh, start when this podcast started but uh, i um, my mind stuck in a question which uh, someone asked before that was about uh, mm-hmm. the sati pratha uh, that mm-hmm. uh, india faced during that british era but mm-hmm. actually no one talks about the, the truth that salem witch trials the things that happened in europe and they burned the women and called them witches um something also happened in like that in russia too uh, so i want to know why those things are suppressed and the sati pratha is uh, like uh, spoke around because there it was a huge problem now we see it in some uh, like in some tv series and some episodes i want to know your views in this very good question so very good question so it's like this uh if you look at the number of women that were burned forcibly alive as witches in 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 europe it would far exceed the real cases of sati in india which were all voluntary you may have a handful of cases in india real hard recorded evidence just a handful of cases in the case of europe you had i don't know tens or hundreds of thousands of maybe tens of thousands of women who were burned alive forcibly as witches 
Now, why is that not emphasized and why are they keep, keeping on lying about India? It's very simple. The world doesn't work on the basis of principles and truth. We keep on uh, shouting the slogan, Satyamayev Jayate. The world doesn't work like that. The world works on the basis of Asatyamayev Jayate. Propaganda Jayate. That's what happens. People will speak untruths and lies to, to further their self-interest. Now, in the West... What they wanted and this, what they still want is they want to eradicate Hinduism and Indian culture from India and they want to spread their culture here. And they want Indians to first feel that their that Indian culture is primitive, it is backward, it is barbaric, misogynistic. So that, that's why they keep on spreading these lies about the, the so-called Sati Pratha. It was not a Pratha, it was a very rare thing. But what they did to their women, they will just try to brush it under the carpet because it is very inconvenient, right? Because that is a hard fact that they cannot deny. So instead of denying it, they will just not talk about it. And if they don't talk about it, then nobody will come to know. See, for us Indians, it is uh, most of us don't even know that they had this practice of burning women as witches. And they had this horrific, misogynistic culture. In some parts of Europe, until the 1990s, women did not have the right to vote. In some parts of Europe, until the 1990s, women did not have the right to vote. Can you believe yeah, it? Yeah, and that's where until the feminism recently. concept started, I think. Exactly. So it is all hypocrisy. So what we need to do is instead of getting emotional, I'm not saying you are being emotional. I'm saying all of us, we Indians are a very emotional people. So <laughs> I'm just saying in general, let's not be emotional. Let's seek out all the facts. The facts are in our favor. They are the ones who are lying. They are the ones who are trying to suppress the truth about their horrific past. Let's just all speak about it. Go to Twitter, go to Facebook, go wherever you are active on social media and tweet about it twice a day. Let's see now how they will hide this. So that's what needs to happen. The world, unfortunately, is not a place where, where truth wins. Propaganda always wins. But if all of us get together and we all speak the truth in unison, then their propaganda will fail. So that's what we need to do. Yes, okay, also that all the sexual harassment cases are more in Europe than in India, but still yeah. we feel ourselves that uh, more number of sexual that our country is more backward. But in the, in the other case around it is the truth. Yes, yes. yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much, sir. And sir, uh, actually, my original question was to ask you about the NEP, the National Education Policy. But um, I'm sorry, you, you can Excellent. only take one Excellent. question. So uh, if you can just share something. Thank it's you. a very big policy. I think I think it's not really effective. That's what I can tell you. We need better reforms. Okay, okay sir. sir. I think our nice meeting you. Very nice to be Thank you, sir. Yes, thank you. I agree. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Okay. Uh, whom shall I bring in? I shall bring in Mr. Shashank. Hello. Namaskar, sir. Namaskar. Namaskar, Shashank. Namaskar. Where are you from? Uh, I am from Delhi, sir. And I am I'm, right. I'm a huge fan, sir. I am following you thank from last, you, you know, four to five years at least. And, you know, I told my parents and families also to watch you because what they taught us, you thank know, you. what they are taught in the school. So, so and they are really satisfied with your conclusion and answer, sir. I have a doubt on, you, from the Mahabharat, Mahabharat sir. I mm -hmm. uh, when one of your videos I have, I watched and you said that uh, regarding the Dronacharya on Eklave and all, and, and I agree on that. What have you said mm -hmm. that, you know, Dronacharya did to the Eklavi and all. But on the Karna mm -hmm. part, you said that Karna mm -hmm. wasn't great. 
and mm-hmm. this strike my mind sir but his deeds are mm-hmm. you know all famous after becoming king his loyalty to his uh, his to his friend duryodhan in spite of being you know he know, he knows that you know i am the son of kunti and then then also he you know didn't revolted against the empire that this throne is mines many uh, mm-hmm. one of the draupadi incidents i i am not with that karna part but apart from the, that you know sacrificed a lot and uh, even he 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 spared the life of the pandyas and even the krishna also told to arjun that it's i who saved you from the karna otherwise and the hanuman's uh, you know uh, flag yes, on on What's chariot so hmm. my question was you you said that the karna wasn't great sir so on what aspect hmm. you are saying that karna okay. wasn't great okay 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 so, yes, so i'll tell you this see there is no doubt that he was a very good warrior better than most warriors better than 99.9% of warriors right he was an elite class warrior really really strong person very good archer very good warrior no doubt about it right but that is not all there is to a human being a, a good human being has to be well rounded it is very clearly mentioned in the mahabharat that he was a rude person he was short tempered he was abusive to people so that is a drawback which let's say arjun did not have the second thing is like you said he was a loyal person right he was loyal to Dron- to to duryodhan now tell me something sir <laughs> are you supposed to be loyal to your friend even though he is evil or are you supposed to be loyal to dharma no uh, i will are you supposed, are you supposed to, to take the, the side of the dharma but, or are you supposed to take the side of your friend who is evil but uh, uh, at uh, in the mahabharata also it's duryodhan his whom who supported him all in all the instances when it here when the pandyas uh, pandavas discriminated him uh, after no no no, no 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 discrimination what discrimination please uh, okay let's see what is the uh, what example do you have of discrimination मुझे let me also participate what's going to happen no sir i i agree on i agree on your on your point but uh, after after some time when he knew that he is the son of the kunti and even after that he didn't tell anyone and you know uh, told anyone about his, his you know uh, truth and despite of that he fought you know uh, under the rule of uh, duryodhan so wasn't he was sacrificing and the second more point See, even like the pandavas See, also like you know Yes, See, it's like this, sir. Life is not always fair. Life is not fair. If you believe that everybody is going to ru- go by the rules and be principled and all that, you're not going to have a good life. Well, I'm I'm not sp- talking about you specifically. I'm saying to everybody that life is not fair. You will face injustice in life. People will not act according to certain principles that you believe in. People are going to be unjust to you. People will be unfair to you. But does it mean that you sh- that you should take the side of adharma? or do, does it mean that you should still be steadfast and follow dharma it's the only simple choice that karna had and unfortunately he took the side of the kauravas and and injustice and that's what happened to him that's what i can say from a big picture perspective if you want to go into every detail we can speak for hours but 
<laughs> that's not what uh, no no sir okay so, thank you so much sir but uh, i have just one point sir even the pandavas also when yeah. they you know in the uh, game of dice when they what they huh. did to the draupadi that that was also not ex- acceptable and it was also i agree with you i agree with you you are 100% right what yudhishthir did do you know uh, let me explain something when the war ended what did shri krishna say to the pandavas go to the himalayas and spend whatever life is left over there none of you deserves to be the king yudhishthir was a compulsive gambler a man who gambled away his brothers and his family and his wife did he did a person like him deserve to be king he was not worthy of being the king you are right your point is 100% valid arjun was a great warrior but when the time came for him to fight he was like i can't fight was he deserving of being a king no these these are the lessons of the mahabharat these are the true lessons of the mahabharat so we have to learn that and we have to understand that so even the pandavas were sir. wrong in many places right yes sir nice you, question nice namaskar. talking to you sir namaskar namaskar, namaskar. nice to nice yeah. to nice to meet you sir nice to meet you too bye okay shivam is very enthusiastic let's bring in mr shivam <laughs> hi can't hear you namaskar Namaste sir. Namaste, namaste. Shyam ji, where are you from? I'm from Mumbai. Uh, mm-hmm. Nice to meet you. What's nice your question? To, nice to talk to you, sir. Uh, mm-hmm. So I have a question. I've written it. Okay. So in your uh, opinion, like if we become a capitalist country, uh, mm-hmm. capitalist society, instead of being a mixed economy, mm-hmm. so would India reach the status of Sone ke Chidiya and? Uh, how many years it will take and will the new entrepreneurial wave help it like uh capitalism is a very quick way of getting very prosperous as we can see with the with the americans and all especially if you have uh, predatory capitalism and capitalistic imperialism if you practice all these various policies in conjunction together then you will get very prosperous very quickly at the expense of other countries and at the expense of the planet because capitalism is about quarter upon quarter profit every quarter your company must show profit and this is a never ending cycle of profit you have to continuously be profitable on so it is about infinite profits on a finite planet what's going to happen it's going to destroy the planet because we are plundering the planet for resources right so capitalism in the short term is going to make any country that does it properly very rich like america But like america but see what they have done to the planet the entire state of the planet is because of what the west has done and the americans essentially what is america it is the continuation of the british empire the british had this downfall but the americans are the descendants of the british and they took it forward so that is the continuation of the british empire they have this global empire today whether you like it or not it, that's what it is it's called a superpower but there is a euphemism for an imperial power So yeah, that's what because the US is. Hmm. because they sell their weapons like to yeah. any other country yeah. to reach yeah yeah their goal so and but how can, the... we, how can yeah. we how uh, can we reach that sonikis cheria status so at this state at this uh, where we are right now we have to pursue the, unfortunately the same policies we have to develop entrepreneurship industrialization manufacturing all those things 
Okay. And hopefully, once we reach a certain status, we'll able to, we, we we can maybe change the way of doing things uh, to be to to be more sustainable and let the planet live longer. I would say. So, but at yeah. this stage, the way the world works, we have to work within those parameters. The entire global system is such that you can succeed currently only with capitalism. There is no other way out. So, if India wants to rise, it has to play the play by the same rules. That's what I just can like say. America. <laughs> Yes, hopefully. Okay, okay. Thank you, All sir. Right. Thank you. Can you just uh, say my family a hi? They are watching your program on the TV in the dining room. Hi to everybody from uh, Shivamji's family. Namaste. Nice to see you all. Namaste, sir. Take care. Bye. Okay, let's bring in Mr. Rahul, who has been waiting patiently. Hello, ji. Good evening. Good day. I can't hear you. Good evening. Good evening. Where are you from? I'm from Bangalore. Bangalore. Okay. Okay, sir. What's your question? Sir, my question is that because most of them are saying that I mean the Western scholars should be saying about Tara and Venus and they came from. I am not able to. It's not. It's not clear. The the sound is not clear. Unfortunately. Sir, uh, my question is that most of the Western scholars should be saying about Tari and Venus and Tari is true and all the things. So, according uh, my understanding is that uh, everyone knows that first life was originated in Africa. Uh, when the life originated in Africa at that time, uh, the Indian subcontinent, Indian continent, Australia, South America, everywhere, every continent was joined together at that time. Uh, or Rahul, Rahul, I'm, I'm really, I'm really sorry. Uh, your voice is not clear at all. I'm not able to understand. So I I really apologize, but it's it's not audible properly. So what I'm going to do? Hello. So now is it uh, audible? Yes, now it is audible. You have done something right. Oh, yes, sir. Please okay. go ahead. Okay. Uh, so what, what, my question my, is my question. Uh, I I can't say what is this, but uh, uh, because you know most I am feeling nervous. Don't be nervous. Relax. Uh, it's just me. Sir, my question is that uh, um, I want to know about uh, the Caucasian race. Uh, where did they come from? Because my understanding is that the Caucasian people are the people of Indian descent who settled in Caucasus mountain and they invaded uh, most of the Europe. And Europe is completely Vedic land. They may say that because of due to Christianity, we are civilized. No, no, never. Because this is the Vedic thing. Uh, still, you can see, find the words of Vedas in. Europe. Uh, so, according to me, uh, Caucasian are the people of uh, are in which are of Indian descent. Uh, so, what's your uh, opinion on that? Our answer for that. Okay, okay, okay. So, what is the origin of the Caucasian race? Is the question. Uh, see, first of all, that the concept of race is pseudo scientific. There is no such thing as a race. There is no such thing as a pure race. There is no such thing as the boundary between one race and another race. Even the concept of species is kind of blurry. Right. So what I can say is this: the origin of the people of Europe. Uh, if you look at the the genetic history of Europe, you will find that uh, most Europeans, especially in Western Europe, are the descendants of the so-called Yamnaya invaders who invaded Europe from the east about five thousand years before today. And if we look at the genetics of these so-called Yamnaya people, you will find a certain lineage, a certain patrilineal lineage, which is passed on from father to son over thousands of years. And this patrilineal lineage or haplogroup is called R1b. 
Now, if you look at the history of R1B, you will find that it originates in India, which kind of tells you that these Yamnaya people were originally people who went out of India at some point in time, a few thousand years before today. And then yeah, they eventually ended up invading and conquering Europe and changing the genetic history of Europe. So that's the origin of the Europeans. Of course, there is other genetics also involved in that. And the skin color keeps changing. Now, again, skin color, if you look at the origin of the fair skin color, the white, white skin color, that genetic mutation also originates in India, strangely enough. So in India, you find all kinds of different variations. In Europe, you find uniformity of skin color, more or less. Yes, sir. Because the explanation I will give uh, why it is the Indian uh, origin is that, you know, because uh, uh, India was not originally, uh, it, it was an Asian continent, right? At the time, India, uh, India had some tectonic movement. Yes. Yes. From so, colliding. So let's understand, let's, 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 let's understand tectonics. Tectonics takes hundreds of millions of years to happen. The movement from Africa to Asia of the Indian subcontinent took at least 100 million years. The human species, Homo sapiens, is not even a million years old. So there is no connection with Africa, right? The history of the human species okay. of Homo sapiens is less than 250,000 uh, 250, years old or maybe 300,000 years old. That's it. So it has nothing to do with tectonics. There is no relation. All right? Okay, sir. Thank you. So another, another thing is that it's not a question or something. Uh, we are watching in this uh, uh, in the in our podcast. I want to say that uh, uh, because most of them have this uh, confusion about the concept known as dharma, because they will be confused. Oh, what is my dharma? How to do it? Uh, whatever I can do. So my understanding of dharma is that uh, the mind full of intellect and the body full of spirit and the soul full of devotion creates dharma. Because you know, Karna, his mind was. Uh, completely uh, what is that uh, uh, he, he, he was not unsure about uh, uh, doing the uh, supporting Duryodhana his mind was completely far away from what he was doing so he was disturbed in his mind so he became other me okay. that's what my understanding about this is alright alright thank you thank you for that thank you for uh, sharing your views thank you take care sir thank you sir I get it. I get it. All right. Thank you. Nice meeting you, sir. Take care. Bye. Okay. Let's bring in somebody else. Um, um, okay. Let's bring in Mr. Rishab. Um, hello, sir. Hi, Rishab ji. How are you from? How, where are you from? How are you doing? Sir, I'm from Indore, Madhya Pradesh, and currently I'm in US. Mm -hmm. Nice. Very good. And uh, sir, my question is uh, like. Uh, about uh, Vikrama Aditya, uh, sir, mm -hmm. it is said that uh, his uh, empire uh, was uh, India spread through India, Saudi Arabia, and even some parts of uh, Russia also. And it uh, it was covered in Iran. Some parts of Iran was also there. And uh, and so why our history book does not tell about that? And uh, like. Uh, uh, currently, like uh, the current government, it is said that it's a right-wing government. So why they are not uh, changing the syllabus of history? It's been almost 10 years they are in the power. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, good question. See, first of all, uh, I have no idea what the government is planning to do and why they, they do certain things, they don't do certain things. I am not privy to uh, what goes on uh, in, in the, uh, what the plans are and all that. So I cannot answer on their behalf. 
maybe we should ask the minister of uh, whoever is in charge of that so i cannot answer on the behalf on their behalf now when it comes to emperor vikramaditya there is a lot of ambiguity there is a lot of confusion about the identity of this great emperor clearly we have this uh, this uh, this story that, that that does not give go away that we had a great emperor called vikramaditya who had a great empire and there is a vikram some uh, somewhat era also named after him so uh, and our historians they claim that this is a mythical emperor yeah, he yeah. did not exist in reality that's what they claim i think that's nonsense i think this great emperor must have existed but the problem is we don't know exactly when he existed we don't uh, because the historians and archaeologists have not done their job that's why we don't have a way of pinpointing when he would have been in power in india at what it, it in what historical period he would, he would have been in power it is said, and uh, well, it is said he yes, was sir? before jesus christ uh, yeah i don't want to mix him up with jesus and all that i will relate him to various other indian uh, eras of history yeah like you said he, he most likely was before uh, the ad period but we don't have sufficient information about him to make a proper assessment of when he lived where his capital is supposed to be ujjain i believe yeah, most likely sir, yeah sir yeah yeah ujjain yeah but we also don't know how big the empire was people make various claims but we don't have hard unambiguous evidence and that's why it's almost impossible for me to say whether it's true or not that he had this big empire which went all these places or not i don't know i don't know Yeah. all i can say is on the basis of evidence i will give you answers but we don't have evidence yeah sir uh, it is said that his empire was still turkey also and there is a one library name uh, uh, like uh, uh, there was a um, famous scholar in turkey and he said that whoever lived at that period was a golden era so uh, from that we can conclude that uh, his empire How was still we cannot make conclusions without evidence now they say there is a library in which there is a book which says that where is the book show me the book show me a photograph why doesn't everybody anyone show me i have not seen a single photograph or picture of this book where it says so and so and so without that sort of evidence how can we make conclusions No, Maybe they're trying uh, to hide it, sure. Yeah, but we have not seen the evidence. Yeah, uh, he's. Uh, I'm forgetting his name, but uh, he has said that's why. So, so like, yeah, we don't have evidence. Yeah. Okay, sir. Okay, See, sir. it's like this. I can also make a claim that so and so was great and all, but it is just words of mouth. It's just hearsay. It yes. is not hard evidence. There is a difference between somebody making a claim and somebody substantiating a claim with evidence that is is tenable in a court of law, for instance. That is hard evidence, right? So we don't have that, unfortunately. Unfortunately, I don't believe that he's a he's a yeah. mythical emperor, but yeah. I don't have sufficient ev- evidence. That's but uh, but uh, he he has the big empire. We can say that. And uh, no, no, no. On, on okay. what basis do we say that? On Because, what basis do we say okay, that? Yeah, okay. Right. Yes, yeah, sir. I so got, yeah. that's what I can say. All right, yeah. nice meeting you, sir. Yeah. Take care. Uh, I may have time for one last question. Let's bring in Mr. Chandrakant. Hello. Uh, hello, sir. Uh, so I'm from Bangalore, and I have this question now regarding the academia, regarding uh, academia throughout the world, as in mm-hmm. it is already left-leaning, and uh, I had gone through a recent. Uh, documents and a few uh, talks as well that say that there is already a preordained kind of uh, way that the humanitarian research goes on like they want to push their agenda by asking certain questions while doing research they want to tease out a certain answer that already supports their uh, 
you know pre-existing uh, beliefs or whatever they want to say and that their yeah. uh, research is actually passive like how do we as a, a developing country which already has such things such uh, views po- i mean uh, you know uh, pushed on us and how do we uh, come out of it like uh, how do we make research as that we come out of such a uh, point of views and uh, yeah look at issues as it is rather than having a yeah. preset uh, you know thought behind it Yeah, I, I get it. Yes, right. That's a very good question. So, what needs to happen is we need to reform our our academic system, which is part of the larger education system. The academia is essentially the highest level of the education system, which is their college and university level uh, research work. That's what it is. So, we need to decolonize this and reform it. So, right now, what happens is that there is this entrenched mafia in the academic system. It is there is this stranglehold of leftist. academics in all the humanities departments and it's even going into the iits and everything right now so that's what's existing right now what needs to happen is we need to decontaminate academia remove all the marxist uh, academics whether they like it or not i am saying remove them from their positions i'm not saying remove them from anything else uh, and we need to have better standards we need to ensure that the university system it is research oriented not teaching oriented teaching should happen of course but there should be research and genuine original research there should be high standards promotions and all that needs to be done on the basis of performance and research not your seniority or whatever it is today and nobody should have a guaranteed job for life because that makes them uh, entrenched forever so we need a s- systematic set of reforms in place in the academic system especially in the universities where the research comes from where all the books are written and all that so all that needs to be done properly in with good planning in a systematic manner we need to decontaminate decontaminate the academic system we need to ensure that all the sources of foreign funding are removed because all of these academics are funded by foreign sources so these things need to happen if we do that then we will have a new crop of academics and researchers who look at the world from without without these blinkers with with with, with a clear view and then you it will the research will be done on the basis of facts and logic and not on the basis of ideology which is what's happening right now what entails this also is that of uh, the fact that uh, the western research is more passive uh, compared to what our civilizational research was because if you even if you look at i i have read a, a partial transcript of rigveda it says and the way the research goes in that is rather constructive compared to what left i mean what west does now because west takes up a research already done they have that view and then upon that the research only to confirm the already existing yeah. research but it is it was not so in our uh, civilization like everything was constructive even if you look at adi shankaracharya you compare his works to this to his predecessors works it was uh, totally deviant like it was completely yeah. new I mean, such such we kind of such sort of things have to be. Yeah, I think that yeah, sort of constructive own, research needs to be brought back to our nation or land. I think I hope so. <laughs> At least happens in the future. So. What's your opinion on that? I agree. I agree. I agree with you. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for All the right, question. Nice uh, it's, it's a great opportunity. Thank you so much. Nice meeting you. Bye. All right. Uh, let's bring in Mr. Vedant, one person who's been waiting for a lot, very long time. last person for today how are you sir uh, nice sir uh, i was trying from yes sir where are you from so uh, from aurangabad okay, okay yeah what were you saying mm-hmm. uh, sir uh, i have too many questions but first i would like to ask 
that is uh, uh, talking about kailash parvat uh, uh, if we see if, uh, if we see uh, kailash parvat on google maps so it comes under china so hmm. it is uh, it is popular because of hinduism culture but then also hmm. why it comes under china and hmm. by uh, any time we can uh, reconquer it okay good question so the question is why does the great sacred mountain mount kailash why is it currently controlled by the chinese by the chinese communist party that's the question you know why it's like that it's because the world is not fair the world doesn't work on the basis of justice truth and principles the world obeys only one law the law of the jungle the big fish will eat the small fish that's what happens so according to truth righteousness and justice kailash parvat should be part of india it should be under indian control but it is currently controlled by the, by the chinese so what should we do we need to get stronger economically and militarily and we need to then at the right time reincorporate that territory into india or otherwise we can free tibet and keep it under tibetan jurisdiction that's what needs to happen so if you want to get justice you have to first make sure that you get strong enough and powerful enough to make your own justice for yourself if you just keep on begging pleading please please give me justice it's not going to happen it's never going to happen so that's what india needs to learn that's what the people of india need to learn there is no justice in the world there is no fairness in the world the world is a harsh place if you want what you deserve strengthen yourself empower yourself and then you will get it otherwise you will never get it that's how it works all right sir yes sir good question thank, thank you. you take care thank you nice meeting you bye okay ladies gentlemen i can see many people trying to <laughs> raise their hands uh okay okay shrikant ji last person last last and final where is he, where is he? Uh, can you hear Hi. me i can hear you yeah i'm from bangalore uh, but i'm doing my masters in astrophysics here and oh wow yeah i, I live in germany currently and i really okay. want your uh, thoughts on this uh, initially when i came into germany and i started uh, studying in this system uh, yeah. i found it's really hard to understand the math and physics behind it because the scale of teaching is very different than what we learn in india but the profound difference i found between us and uh, people like germans and japanese they learn fundamental mathematics and physics in their mother tongue so their thought process is very very clear and they can they just have to translate it to another language but in our case we have to think in a language that is not ours so do you think uh, we should start teaching all these things in a um, in the native languages of uh, the, the various states such that we are firm in our thinking and english should only be a medium of translation what are your thoughts on this i really would like to know this is an excellent excellent question my i have i am of the firm of let's look at history if we look at the period before 1500 ad all of the scientific advancements all of the scientific knowledge astronomical knowledge it all came from india via arabia into europe then they translated into latin and that's how they were able to build up what is known today as modern science and techno yeah. technology right so yeah. all of the fundamental work whether it is algebra trigonometry calculus astronomy whatever was done in indian languages mostly sanskrit yeah and right yeah so yeah 
so the argument that is made is that english is the language of science and technology without english we will not be able to do science what yeah. nonsense all of yeah. the science was done in sanskrit and in indian languages in yeah. the kerala school of mathematics and where not what not so what i firmly believe is that all of these concepts should be taught in the mother tongue of the child always that yes. is the fastest and most effective way to learn anything especially mathematics especially logic especially science yes. it has to be taught in the mother tongue then see how many geniuses come out of india that's what needs to happen yeah that's um, I, i just wanted to come a comment because uh, when i was learning cosmology here um right now they are te- teaching about this uh, big bang but there is not much evidence leading further uh, in that direction so now they i've seen papers coming out which says our universe is a bouncing model but we already have in our literature that our universe exists as a brahma day and a brahma night how it uh, comes into life and and people don't uh, are not willing to accept that this stems from uh, indian uh, culture and indian uh, talk uh, like literature and now they are like this is a novel idea this is the way research should proceed and i find it funny so yeah that's what it thank is, you so much for very funny indeed, indeed very good point that you have made and i agree that all these concepts were first conceived of in india yeah. they they are they are looking for, looking to over text for inf- inspiration and then they are saying we have discovered this, this is a new idea yeah. what nonsense yeah. <laughs> it's yeah very good point thank very good thank nice you so much you. yeah nice meeting thank you too thank you, thank you. thank you bye all right uh, ladies and gentlemen this is the end of today's session very interesting session i'm very glad to see new faces very very interesting let's keep doing this i apologize to those of you who are waiting but uh, this is truly the end for today <laughs> so let's keep doing this i hope to meet all of you and each i sh- i hope to give all of you a chance to speak to me in the co- forthcoming sessions so take care and i will see you very soon again take care bye